while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews is truly sermonic, you know, uh, and in this passage that there is a warning, you know, pay close attention and do not fall away is there. Do not fail to enter that rest. Uh, It is a warning that we're not dealing with secondary things, but we're dealing with primary reality itself. So, you know, he'll talk about Sinai. It's not a mere mountain of smoke and fire that we've come to in Christ but we've come to the divine presence. It's not a mere earthly city, but it's the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, It's not a continually repeated sacrifice, but this is the real sacrifice made once and for all. It's not a temple that we have in Christ that's constructed by human hands, but one built by God. And he'll picture the veil of the temple having been pulled back to reveal then the reality of the Holy of Holies. The shadow then has been replaced by the thing which it foreshadows. So listen up, pay attention, is one of the messages of the book. Uh, In 3.12 he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In 4, 1 to 2, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In four eleven to 12, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. In 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Uh, In 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full full assurance of faith. In 12.22, 1 to 2, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance. So, the book is an exhortation. I've just picked some. There are whole chapters that are filled with exhortation. And clearly, what he's warning about is that what had been in Judaism symbolic and only pertaining to Israel in uh, as a Uh, you know, as a people, now pertains to the whole world and to all people. Uh, The temple, which, you know, is is now the the dwelling place of God is with man, is the picture that we've entered into the Holy of Holies. Uh, The glory of God is not simply in these theophanies of cloud and fire, but in the real presence of God. Um, most unique, perhaps, to the book of Hebrews. You know, we have the world of space, but also the world of time has changed up. Uh, certainly heaven and earth are brought together, but it's also uh, this urgency of time, the time of Sabbath, uh, that I think in all of these exhortations, the idea of today, if you hear his voice, you know, do not fail. 
uh, in these last days, and you know, the book begins, he's spoken to us in his son. Uh, Today I have begotten you. Um, So when uh, God says today, he does, he means that uh, he's referring certainly to the idea perhaps of the generation uh, uh, of Christ is always perfect. You know, he may be describing the imminent trinity, uh, but I think he's also describing uh, the incarnation. Today refers to the eternal generation of the Son, but also the temporal generation in and through which we have access to the eternality of God. Um, I don't know, Giorgio Agamben has written a book on Romans, and he's entitled it, The Time That Remains. Uh, he there, And so in his phrase, We've entered into messianic time. The present moment, today, the Sabbath rest, means that it is no longer ordinary chronos, you know, the one sequential moment after another, but it's kairos, and that's the word that's used in Hebrews and in most of the New Testament. This is uh, uh, just as God's plan for space and matter was to unite it all, everything in heaven and earth in the Messiah, so God's plan for time itself was to bring everything to a head in the Messiah. Um, thinking here of a you know parallel passage in Ephesians, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The summing up is spatial, it's cosmic, but it's also uh, has to do with time, and especially the he, uh, Hebrews' use of the term of Sabbath rest. Uh, the, you know, the, we have in Paul and many places, even Jesus in the gospel, the now, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so there is this idea of uh, the now of the gospel. But the signpost of that in the Old Testament, of entering into God's time was Sabbath. And so we could say we've entered into the now time. Uh, In Hebrews 1, after God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, uh, is in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son. That is, the the variety of ways, the variety of times has entered Uh, culminated in the singular today. The Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Hebrews 3, 7 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Um, This is Agamben again. Two times enter into the constellation the apostle called Honin Kairos, the present time. Messianic time is a summary recapitulation of the past. This recapitulation of the past produces a pleroma, a fullness, a saturation, and fulfillment of Kairoi. Messianic Kairoi are therefore literally full of Kronos, but an abbreviated summary of Kronos. And this anticipates eschatological pleroma 
when God will be all in all. So Messianic Pleroma is therefore an abridgment and anticipation of eschatological fulfillment. What he's describing then, I think, is, I think it's most distinctively there in the writer of Hebrews when he talks about do not fail to enter into the time of God, enter into the Sabbath rest. Uh, if you combine this as Agamben does uh, with the idea of, you know, in a uh, Hebraic sense of messianic time, uh, it's not a time that's uh, uh, like others. He says it's the innermost disjointedness within time, through which we may be a hair's breadth gra- uh, grasp time. Uh, by a hair's breadth, grass time and accomplishment. That is, that we can actually come to the fullness of time. The writer of Hebrews says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, And of course, the imagery here is both creation and exodus. God resting on the seventh day, uh, and then in Psalms it talks about, you know, they shall not enter my rest. He says in four four. therefore since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience. Throughout the, you know, by the time we get to three, and I think it's already there in two, the imagery is of the Exodus. You know, he's describing angels that God or Christ is greater than the angels. And of course, the particular angels are the angels that delivered the law. So he's saying in chapter 2, do not, you know, pay attention. Do not, you know, fail to hear. Uh, and then he's going to move on as the Exodus does into talking about uh, deliverance from sin and the, the tendency to fall back into slavery. He says in 4.16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And there, the particular word there, the time of need, uh, is the eukairos, the, the time of redemption, the time of help. Uh, as uh, we might translate Romans 12.2, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And, of course, this only makes sense if we recognize the age to come is already here. This world, and the writer is using, he's going to use the term world in both one and two, but the world that he's saying is the world to come and the time to come is already intersecting with the present world and the present time. As Ephesians says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, uh, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now be made known through the church. Um, in, uh, the, a lot of this is reflective of, I think, Isaiah In a favorable time, Isaiah 49, I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. 
And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are bound, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be in all, on all bare heights. Isaiah 48. This uh, The passage that the writer of Hebrews is going to... I, I looked it up and I noticed what comes immediately after Psalm 95 is Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. So the day of salvation is now, is the message of Hebrews, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then he references signs and wonders. Uh, and that is right out of Deuteronomy of the signs and wonders through which God delivered Israel from, ex, uh, from slavery in, in Egypt. Um, this is, uh, uh, if we reference 6.5, we've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The age to come is now. We're already tasting the Sabbath. We've already entered into the Sabbath. So Hebrews assumes that material reality can participate in something more. And this is kind of getting to my main point tonight. I think Hebrews is a strange book for us, that we live in a kind of disenchanted world, a kind of flat world. And when you start reading Hebrews, suddenly here's all this talk about angels and, and you know a different perception of time and the picture of heaven come to earth. I think it's an enchantment that we've in some way rid ourselves of in a flat earth kind of understanding, or a, maybe a flat metaphysics. In Hebrews, heaven and earth intersect in this sacred, sacred time called now. Um, that uh, in 4.34, or has a God, or uh, uh, rather Deuteronomy 4.34, I think is the reference to the signs and wonders there in chapter 2. Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm? The reference, of course, is to God delivering Israel and the signs and wonders is a phrase that we think is just a kind of formula that comes with the preaching of the gospel. Paul will refer to it, Acts refers to it, Thessalonians, Corinthians. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, so Hebrews is calling us to see a beyond the present perspective, beyond a flat understanding of reality. I think our modern metaphysical assumption Everything is, you know, contextual. Everything is identified on a grid at a specific point in time and receives its meaning from its location. 
uh, we can plot everything now in computer code of one and zero. Uh, everything is what it is because it can be given a value. It can be exchanged. Uh, Max Weber refers to the, uh, the disenchantment of our world. And Max Weber, as you know, is the one who gives us the spirit of capitalism. Uh, with capitalism, there is this flattening of the world. We live in a, in a disenchanted world with very little mystery because we live in a secular age. And as Christians, we've absorbed that kind of flat-earth understanding. Rudolf Bultmann, the, you know, the liberal theologian, says, uh, We cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. In other words, he's saying we've got to demythologize the New Testament. We've got to take the enchantment out because we have radios now. He was alive a long time ago. Uh, we have modern medicine, and therefore we no longer, we live in, you know, he lives in this very flat metaphysics. Uh, was he criticizing that, or was he no. accepting that? Oh. <laughs> no, that's, that's as good as it gets with um. Boltman. Uh, he, he says, so since we have radios and modern medicine, we know now that there's not this deep metaphysical understanding. Boltman is kind of the, uh, in a sense, it's nice to reference him because I think he's, it's clear that theological liberalism has picked up on a Boltmanian, you know, flat earth. But I think just to the same degree that across the board that modern thought lives in this kind of flat, flat earth understanding. Um, we need, you know, this was his point of we need to, disenchant. We need to demythologize the Bible uh, to make to, to live life on the, the grid. And Hebrews challenges this intent by saying, well, actually the world that we live in uh, is more like the matrix. Uh, it's an illusion. And what Hebrews is trying to show us is that if we are not attentive, we're going to fall, I think, into the delusion of the flat grid of the Matrix. Uh, you know, in the Matrix, when Morpheus reveals the Matrix to Nemo, he, uh, he says that it represents the world pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. I think that's this flat earth kind of metaphysics. It's been pulled over our eyes. Uh, Neo says, well, what's truth? And Morpheus tells him that you are a slave born into a prison for your mind. Um, in the Matrix, uh, more, the full statement from Morpheus, the Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it, feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. 
I think that that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. You're living in a flat, disenchanted world, and we become used to this flat disenchantment. And the message then of Hebrews is take the red pill. (laughs) Uh, Reading and being open to the message. Maybe it's like falling into a rabbit hole. I don't necessarily like the Alice in Wonderland story, but... Uh, because it's actually going the other way. But we need to relinquish temporarily one world, the world that we've, I think, created for ourselves, and the world that we comfortably live in, and we need to take the plunge with Hebrews and begin to see things in uh, beyond the grid, maybe. Athanasius suggested that we... Uh, have to go through a bit of a discipline to even begin to hear the message of the book of Hebrews. This is Athanasius. But for the searching and right understanding of the scriptures, there is a need of a good life and a pure soul, and for Christian virtue to guide the mind to grasp, so far as human nature can, the truth concerning God the Word. One cannot possibly understand the teaching of the saints unless one has a pure mind and is trying to imitate their life. What Athanasius is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not so much your capacity to think these things out as it is your ability to walk them out. That the Christian understanding is one that you gain in and through the practice of Christianity. Uh, Anyone who wishes to understand the mind of the sacred must first cleanse his own life and approach the saints by copying their deeds, he says. Uh, So maybe for us to hear Hebrews well, we have to undergo a fast from the world. Perhaps reading scripture well is less a matter of finding the proper method, you know, like the historical critical method, Uh, and more the embodiment of certain ways of living, of a philosophy in the ancient sense. And then we'll be enabled to see it more clearly. As we embody this understanding, uh, as we separate ourselves from the matrix, I think we can begin to see it for the flat grid that it actually is. You can almost do a history of interpretation. Stephen Long has done this. Remember, those of you who went to Lincoln, we met Stephen Long. Uh, He does a a history of the chronology of of the interpretation of Hebrews and shows the flattening out of the interpretation. So, you know, when Chrysostom reads it, uh, he does not doubt the role of angels in Christ's work. Uh, when Aquinas reads it, he has no problem. But by the time we come to Calvin in the 16th century, there's a growing divide between the work of the angels and the work of human creatures. And so Calvin reads the reference to the angels metaphorically. And therefore this passage refers, he says, to the winds that obey God's commands. Uh, he, He would then just say it's not real angels, it's allegorical. By the time we get to modern commentators, Harold Atridge uh, 
reads it in an even flatter way. He says, in the Hebrew original, the psalmist praises God who makes the winds thy messengers and the flames of fire thy servants. In rendering the Hebrew so that the predication is reversed and angels are explicitly introduced, the translator of the uh, Septuagint may have had in mind theophanies in which meteorological phenomena were taken to be transformed angels. I don't know if you understood what I just said. He's saying, oh, he's just talking about the weather. That the angels are, you know, winds. It's windy today. Or it's meteor. It's allegorical talk for the weather. So Hebrews challenges the capacity, this is Luke Timothy Johnson, of the historical critical approach to do what it does best. This is largely because it proposes as real a world that most of us consider imaginary. And so maybe we need a reworking of our imagination, and maybe Hebrews is the place to begin. This is long. He says, if we are to invite readers into the odd world of Hebrews, we will first need to invite them to suspend their belief in the metaphysics of the flat world to begin to think that there might be something more than causes and effects that can always be potentially calibrated. So let's begin our re-enchantment and read uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Rachel, you want to start with verse 1? Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Um, the the metaphor, the underlying metaphor, and there will be a lot of this uh, in Hebrews. The word drift is there in the Greek, meaning maybe ship metaphor, or you know uh, that you're going to pass it. There's a, the, one of the books I have on Hebrews is called "The Captain of My Soul," uh, referencing the imagery of of uh, Hebrews. And so the picture is that if we don't pay attention, we're going to miss this thing. We're going to drift on past it as we float in the currents of the present age. Because the currents of the present age and the current of Hebrews are flowing in a different direction. And so we're going to have to swim upstream. We're going to have to pay attention. David, you want to read verse 2? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And go ahead and finish the sentence. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Throughout the the language here, he's using legal metaphors, transgression, disobedience, retribution. Um and obviously making reference to the Mosaic law. And in, you know, Paul will refer in Galatians and other places to the law having been delivered by angels. Uh, The image is that Moses is the mediator, but Moses, the theophanies that he witnessed, were in fact angelic, that uh, the true mediators were the angels. And that was a, a, a common understanding in uh, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and so the picture here of comparing Christ and the angels, uh, 
I've said, and I, I still, I'm still holding to that, is that the angels are spirit beings. They're disembodied. And the word that they delivered then is not on the order of the embodied word, which is Christ. But even so, uh, there, the, the, this word was binding. Every transgression you know, received its just retribution. But then the phrase that we heard, I referenced a little bit, and it's there in the Old Testament. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is the salvation that all of the you know, work of the temple and the priesthood and Moses was pointing to. Uh, the day of salvation is here. And then, uh, uh, let's do verse the rest of verse 3, Caitlin. Go ahead and do 3 and 4. All of three and all of four? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is probably, this is, I think, the strongest verse to uh, say that Paul has not written this book. Because he says it was declared by those who attested to, uh, it was attested to us by those who heard. I don't think Paul would ever say that about himself. Because Paul would say, I'm one of those who heard. I'm not one that heard secondhand. And it's this verse then that most people would dismiss Pauline authorship. Um, and so it's declared by the Lord, by Christ, and here he's shifting language. He's referred to the Son up until now. Now he's going to refer to him as Kyrios, as Lord, uh, still referencing Christ, the Son. So there are still some alive, maybe, who have known Jesus, have walked with Jesus. And those are the ones from, through whom the Hebrews whoever they might be, have heard. That is, they've heard it secondhand, and the writer has heard it secondhand. Uh, and then he uses the language that I referenced in Deuteronomy. It's there in several places surrounding the Exodus of signs and wonders and various miracles. And this then connected to the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the, you know, the on the day of Acts. Uh, the signs and wonders, and this is accompanying the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the image then uh, of the, as in the prophecy of Joel, is when the Holy Spirit comes, then salvation has come. And so what the signs are pointing toward is this great salvation that he's describing. Stop me anytime if I'm saying too much. Chris, you want to do verse 5? For it was not to angels that God subjected to the world, the world to come, of which we are speaking. Next time I'll do a bit with this phrase, the world to come. Um, I don't think it's that complicated, but the idea is that there is the coming kingdom that has already been inaugurated. There is the coming age 
Yes, but we're in this age that is coming. And so the world that is coming is heaven. But it's heaven come to earth, I think, is the imagery. That is, the two worlds, the world in which the writer is going to present, you know, picture the Holy of Holies, and the created world are coming together. The, the presence of God in heaven is being uh, manifested or coming to the earth. Uh, and, and the picture is that uh, he's going to subject all things. That, you know, as the Ephesians talks about, he, he fills all things. Uh, verse 6, Maisie. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? I don't think we need to make this refer in its original specifically to Christ, but here it certainly refers to Christ, right? That is that if you think of what Paul does, I think with Adam, that um, Christ is the true Adam. Christ is the one uh, who is the true, you know, fulfillment of the purposes of Adam. And that, uh, maybe we need to go ahead and read verse 7 and 8, Michael. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so I think that has clearly been carried out by the Son of God, by the Messiah. But he is our representative, right? That uh, he is the representative humanity, the representative Adam. Uh, and so that, of course, right after this, I didn't, uh, we, we see that he's made like us in every way, so that even you know, death itself is brought into subjection to him. That even Satan is brought in, you know, to subjection to him. And faith, you want to do verse 8? In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Uh, the world is being made subject to Christ. And we are part of that uh, restitution of the mandate of uh, responsibility given to Adam. Uh, the, the, with the fall of man, creation is out of control, right? But with the creation uh, uh, being restored in Christ, so too the creation mandate, the dominion mandate is being restored. Uh, but we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, I think a reference to the incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with, and here he, he says clearly that this is who he's been talking about all along, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That is, the way in which he's going to subject all things is in and through his life, death, resurrection, and deception. <clears throat> he's may and he'll he's going to carry this thought out because of his suffering. Um, he suffered in every way, just as we have, even unto death. 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Uh, what's the enemy? What's the problem? The final enemy is death. And he's going to describe that as that we're subject to the fear of death because of the deception of the evil one. And so the way that Christ undoes that subjection, you know, think here he's going to talk about deliverance from slavery as in a deliverance from bondage and entering into the promised rest. Uh, he's going to, that's the thought that he's going to carry from chapter 2 into chapter 3. All right, that was any comments, questions, thoughts? Do you think that, the, like what you're talking about with like the flat metaphysics and the flat world and that understanding, do you think that's why, um, do you think that's shaped our understanding of the kingdom of God and how it's appearing in the world and where it is and, and what it is and those kinds of things? Yeah, I think that uh, we almost, in, in uh, many theologies and many churches, we almost can't see the intersection of God's kingdom and this world's kingdom. Is that what you're thinking yeah. there? Yeah, just how it's, like a lot of what you're talking about also is just posed as something that's only in the future and that we can look forward to as something in the future, but it has no work in the present right now. In, in most people's Christianity, they have not tasted of the age to come. They have not entered into the Sabbath rest. They have not paid careful attention. So I think, yes, the, 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 the book of Hebrews stands over and against a theology uh, that would just delay everything for the future and continue to live in a kind of flat way here. I mean, the, and the place that this is occurring is the, the church. And, and I, don't, I think maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe we shouldn't even use the word church anymore. Because I think we, got, we have so many wrong images. When you're, when you're thinking the time of the Hebrews or the writing of the New Testament, what they meant by the, the Christians was probably about a group about this size meeting in somebody's living room. And, oh, I've heard that there's another group over on, you know, the street. They're meeting too. They weren't thinking, you know, as, as we often do at church. So it's this humble little group of people in which the kingdom of God is breaking in. That just sounds ridiculous. Unless you you can have your world changed up and you can begin to put on this alternative. I've been reading a couple of different books by Daryl Guder. I don't know if you've yeah. read them, but he deals a lot with the kingdom of God, and so that's why I asked that question, because what you're talking about with Kronos and Kairos, that's where he's coming from, some of it. So. Yeah, Kronos is the, you know, the Greek, is it the Greek god that uh, yeah. runs by and he has a ponytail? You know, and you, Kronos is, you know, you try to grab the ponytail, but it's just impossible to grab. You can't get a handle on time. Time is slipping away. Um, and that's sort of way that some people live their lives. Their lives are, is, is a continual attempt to grab all the gusto you can, you know, to get a handle on things. But I think the image in Kairos is this event-oriented time that uh, this now is an extended now 
that contains eternity. It's not slipping away. In fact, we enter into it. We inhabit it. And I think the way we enter into it and inhabit it is then as a, as a, in, in the body of Christ that we can do Kairos time. We can do, we can redeem the time. We can dwell in the presence of God. We can set aside the burdens of enslavement and have rest in God. Uh, your devotion tonight was uh, that pointed that. Just a simple understanding of acceptance. People are in desperate need of that sort of acceptance. And so I think that's part of the imagery of the Sabbath. Uh, that's what I'm thinking too. When you say Sabbath rest, that's the best way to picture it because it's opposed to like what you're saying. I mean, time is slipping away. Like that is the pressure of everyday life, you know? Just like you got to get out there, you got to put yourself out there, you got to get as much as you can while you can, and, you know, in, like, all sorts of ways, you know. It's just like, you got to take advantage of this while you're young. I mean, there's just, like, anything and everything that is, like, more, more, you know, just requiring more of you. And so, yeah, you, you know, just, just the ideas that Jesus says about, you know, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. It's like, that has to be different. You know, it should be a very clear difference from how you've been living and there's no way that that can just be in your head. Because in your head is like where all that, is all the hectic, you know, stuff is happening too. So there's got to be rest in your head also. <laughs> and, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, what a waste of time. Yeah. To gather together and read this nonsensical book about that has this strange metaphysic. Well, that would be a way. It's certainly not practical, is it? It's not going to, you know, is this going to advance you in your work? Are you going to be a better American? Are you going to, you know, that all the things that we look to do with time, with Kronos, I think is that in the, the church we're checking out of this. We're saying, well, actually, we don't count time that way. Mm-hmm. It's not a pragmatic yeah. source. And it's of, not that we're being, again, it's not that it doesn't exist and that we're not, we aren't actually getting older or that they're, you know. But it's just, again, it's not defining us. It's not, that's not putting any more anxiety on us. But, like, we just accept our situation and whoever, you know, wants to, talk about it and we just figure out how to I don't know how to live you know but I think maybe even some of it plays off of like the flat like the flat concept or um of like the static understanding of rest and peace that we've kind of inherited where peace is showing where nothing is happening and rest is something where nothing is happening but rest and peace in scripture are things where things are happening and fruit is being given and fruit Mm -hmm. is being nurtured and Seeds are being all those things where things are happening and things are growing and being made more beautiful and more alive and just how we've inherited some kind of static sense of those two words and that in some way rest has become a bad thing because it's yeah. nothingness and death rather than life giving. Yeah. Part of this is there and yeah, this is John Walton's book on Genesis. 
that we need we almost need to rework our understanding of what the Sabbath, the seventh day was. Sabbath the seventh day is when God is usually pictured as entering the temple. So it's not, oh God was worn out and he needed some leisure activity. Uh, that uh that here, the seventh day is the time in which creation ceases for God to enter his creation. And so Sabbath is the shift to re- the redemptive activity or the, in- the indwelling, you know, the, the way in which we in- uh, uh, share creation with God. And so the redemptive activity, I think, is the seventh day in which we can enter into God's presence. Let me reverse what I just said, though. If leisure then is in some way checking out of the hectic chronos, uh, the drive to survive, maybe we can just look at Christianity, and this is kind of puts the wrong slant here, as a kind of leisure. It's a leisure in the sense that we're no longer burdened with the, you know, just that, listen to the word, the, the, the chronos, chronic. You know, the disease that we have in some way is the, the, the time is infecting us with death. I think that's the chronic disease of human beings. And so to enter into the Sabbath rest is to pass from Kronos to Kairos in which uh, we, you know, Kairos is the redemptive period. It is that we inhabit that. I think that's a whole new way of of that uh, of as you're saying, Maisie. It's a way, new way of thinking, a new way of doing, uh, a, a new way of valuing things. So you know, in the flat grid of things, everything ha- has its uh, it, its value according to the price. Everything has its price. Uh, but this great salvation then changes up all values. Yeah, I was going to ask that the distinction between understanding salvation and, you know, Sabbath. Like, is there any, uh, is there a harmony or distinction between two? Well, the writer of Hebrews is equating entering into the Sabbath rest with salvation. He's saying that is salvation, which is a whole different way of talking about salvation. It's not, oh, when I die, by and by, my soul's going to you know, go up in the air. But it's the idea of a way of a, a manner of living that we begin to institute by entering into God's rest, by paying careful attention, by recognizing the time, by taking a hold of this great salvation. And so it is a present tense now. We do it now. We enact it. So it's a practical salvation. Practical in the sense that we begin to live it out. You can, you know, lay your burden down, uh, I think is the the picture. That you don't need to let this thing eat you up. We've all got a cancer. None of us are going to get out of this alive. Except we've already gotten out of it alive. We've already been given the cure. And that's the resurrection, you know, faith that the writer's going to talk about. Uh, that entering into that rest, 
What were they doing when they weren't entering into the rest? Well, they were in the wilderness dropping dead. And that's where they, you know, for a generation, they were failing to enter into God's rest, to fail to enter into the promised land. And so the whole picture is the picture of Exodus, passage, you know, and passage then into the, the, the promise of this great salvation that is no longer simply a particular place, but it's cosmic. It's no longer a particular time, but it's a time that is continually available to us. There's no one else that I know of in the New Testament that writes this way about the Sabbath. I mean, it's there in Paul. It's there, you know, now is the time. Now, but the, the imagery that you have in, in uh, of the Sabbath rest, I think, is unique uh, to the writer of Hebrews. Not that the idea is, is strange, but the way that he describes it, of equating Sabbath rest and salvation. But I think it also gives us, it puts together then, that creation, you know, seventh day of creation, it puts together the, cos- the, the temple as cosmic, you know, the temple was always representative of a, uh, a, a kind of cosmic representation. Uh, and so where the Jews had only a singular day of Sabbath, which was just a foreshadowing, uh, we've entered into the reality. Or we have the, the potential.